final message in Thessalonians is I thank God. Oh, if only Pastor Chase was up here on the drums, he could have just said, boom, right there really hard for the I thank God song. That would have been really fun. But I thank God. Um, let's just take a moment right here, right now, and I just, I need it, two words, because I got a lot to cover, and we don't have time, so I can't hear a life story. Just quickly, what do you thank God for here right now? Could be health, could be whatever. Somebody shout out, what do you thank God? Glad tidings. Me, oh, thank you, thank you. Life, what else? Pastor Chase, I heard, what else? Deliverance, church family, what else? What else are you thankful for? Friends, prayer. My husband, all right, that's two for me. <laughs> Your kids, I love it. What else? Come on. Salvation, I love it. What else are you thankful for? Jesus, keep them coming. Forgiveness, what else? Liberation. Love, okay. Come on. Holy Spirit. Oz, I'm picking on you. What are you thankful for? I'll come back to you. Think about it. <laughs> what else? New identity. The car. Okay. Grace. His word. What's that back there? Life. Again, that's three for me, two for Pastor Chase. We're, we're, we're racking it up. A house? House. Job. I love it. What's that? Health. Yes. Breath. And we could keep going. But it takes moments like this to be mindful of the fact that we have so much to be thankful for. Not just a Thanksgiving season thing. Not a one time of a year thing. It's, it's a God thing. First Thessalonians, going back a little bit to the fifth chapter, a part that we, we didn't cover. Let me read for you, starting in the 16th verse. It says this, Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, good and bad, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul has talked about so much in these books for the Thessalonians. And as we've seen, Paul has not been angry with the Thessalonians. He hasn't been frustrated with them. They have been so utterly faithful. So faithful, in fact, that there are people all throughout the surrounding territories hearing of the gospel of Jesus because of the faithfulness of this group, this church in the city of Thessalonica. Some of the things that Paul has talked about, we already mentioned. And rather than rehashing them all out, what I want to point out to you in line with, with the, the, the theme of today's message is that Paul never stops giving thanks. And he never stops giving thanks through prayer. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians and you jump to 2 Thessalonians, even in the first chapter before he gets into everything, he goes, I ought always to thank God for you. Ought always to thank God for you. 
And then he jumped into the, once again, the, the parousia, the return of Jesus, his second coming. Last week, we looked at the man of lawlessness, the rebellion, more of the end times, kind of revelation, return of Christ events as they'll unfold. And now right here, where we're going to pick up and we're going to conclude in this book, in this series, is Paul once again giving thanks. And he does it in prayer. But it's expressive. It's out loud. It's written down for all of his dearly beloved brothers and sisters in Christ to read, to hear. Let me read it for you. Verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by God. Because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can get so caught up in, in trying to understand God's will, God's word, God's ways, his plan for us, how we're to live in it, that we miss. We ought always to thank God for what he has done for us. Thank God for what he's doing in your lives, my life. God, I thank you. There's all these questions and these worries and these concerns and Paul's addressed them, but now we got to stop and we've got to give thanks and praise to God. Can't get caught up in here or in our circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. Believers who are being persecuted, who are struggling, who have been given understanding to their questions, some resolution. Paul says, now I give thanks for you. Now, what I want to do is kind of pick apart and understand this prayer. Not so that we can just understand it up here, but so that we can understand how this kind of praying in particular influences all of our being, all of who we are, all of how we think, feel, and act Prayer really aligns us with God. Um, one pastor has said, and I always repeat it, prayer is bringing God into the center of our circumstances. It's making God king and Lord of our life, no matter what we're going through. It's realigning ourselves with God and putting him in control. And that's what Paul is doing here in this prayer of thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. He's reminding them of how good God is and how he has been to them. So he said, first, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, loved by God. Brothers and sisters, phileo, you are loved. That's the first point that I want you to understand. God loves you. Some of you really need to be reminded of that. Can, can you all look at me right here, right now? I need you to look at me as best you can. I know I can't look at all of your eyes at once. God loves you. God loves you. He proves his love through these following actions that Paul continues to give thanks through prayer to God for. He says, loved by the Lord, my brothers and sisters, because God chose you as first fruits. God chose you is my second point because he loves you god chose you 
But you remember when I talked about a couple of weeks, this whole, this whole almost paradoxical relationship that we're in where, you know, God has chosen us. He's predestined us. He's called us out of the world. But then there's still this like, okay, now live this way. Here's your response. You've got to respond to it. You've got to respond to it. You have to respond to it. It's like, okay, so does, does God just choose me randomly through a, a, from a box of a bunch of random assortments? Say, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved. All right, the rest I throw out. Or, or is it I'm in this box and God wants to choose me, but I just need to work, 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 and prove myself before he'll choose me? Neither. It's both. I said a couple weeks ago that our relationship with God is like a dance. But he's leading. You've got to dance with him. You can't just, just plop on the ground and say, all right, let's get jiggy. <laughs> let's dance. You've got to dance with him, but he has to be the one leading. He's the one that invites you to dance, and he's the one that leads the dance. And that's really this reality that Paul once again is saying, I thank God because of how much he loves you that he chose you and he chose me. Not because of how good-looking I am, of how I can dance, about how good I act, the type of person that I am in my being. It has nothing to do with me. God chose me because God loves me. And that's it. There's no other answer to why did God choose me? Because he loves you. And he chose you. And then, and then Paul uses really, really important language here, and he describes the Thessalonians in particular here as first fruits. First fruits are interesting. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, there's, there's so much meaning to them. In the Old Testament, the first fruits that were given of the crops or of the cattle were of the choicest of, their, of all of their storehouse or their cattle. So you didn't go and you didn't pick kind of the leanest or the weakest or the you know, easily ones that, ah, I'm just going to throw those out at the end of the day anyway. Ah, it's chump change. It, it was, I'm taking my very best, the finest that I have, and I'm portioning it. I am setting it aside. And before I do anything else with all of my storehouse, before I divvy up what me and my family need to survive the winter, before I figure out what I need and I owe to pay back and, and all that, I'm taking this of the choicest, the finest of what I have first, and I'm giving it to God first fruits. So, so that, that's kind of that Old Testament idea. And now Paul is likening it to the Thessalonians here saying, you are first fruits. What I think is interesting here is that they are, as we saw in first Thessalonians and, and once again in second Thessalonians, they were the first believers in Thessalonica, not in Macedonia, the region, but in that city. Because remember Paul, he went, he proclaimed the gospel and a bunch of Jewish people ran him out of the town. But now there's a church in the city of Thessalonica, and this church is the recipient of this letter. They're the first. They started this church, and Paul is writing to them saying, I thank God because you're the first fruits of the ministry, the first of much more that is to come. These believers were, I, I, it's twofold. Number one, as we've talked about looking at the Old Testament idea of, of first fruits, they were the best of the harvest. I can't really say much more to that if we take the idea of first fruits and its whole biblical understanding. There's something to be said about that. They had the choice. The 
choicest, the finest. Saying they're better than and more righteous or more loved by God, but there's something special because they were the first to respond when nobody else would. And Paul says, you're a first fruit. You are a first fruit, a holy, pleasing offering to God. First fruit. I think and I wonder if there's something there to be said for those of us that are on the fence about responding. Maybe the first in our family to the word of God. The first in our circles of friends. The first in our workplace, you know. Maybe the first in our family to break addictions that have just gone down the line that my, my parents and my grandparents and my great-parents, they've all struggled with that. Maybe you're the first to break that. You're, you're, you're a first fruit to God. But then the second part, these believers were only the beginning of the harvest. I love that because it's not going to stop with them. They were the first fruits. But as we saw, as we read in 1 Thessalonians, it rang out into Macedonia and Achaia. It didn't stay with them. The gospel didn't stay with them. And the gospel wasn't proven to be impotent, but omnipotent. It was powerful, all powerful to the extent that masses of people were coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, all because of the first fruits. Thessalonians and Paul says, I thank God that he loved you and he chose you as first fruits. Quickly read for you. Romans 16, 5, Paul says this. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. The same exact Greek word there is the same exact Greek word for first fruits, and literally it's translated first fruits. So first convert is to help us understand it better when we read it, but it literally means he was the first fruit. Said 1 Corinthians 15 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Who's the first to resurrect from the dead? Jesus. He's the first fruit of that unbelievable ministry, of that hope. He's the first fruit. Loves you. God chose you. God saved you. Because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. All that we once were. All that we once were enslaved to. All that had been and all that baggage he delivered you from that. You're set free from that. Who you were is no more. He saves you. This isn't necessarily anything new to any of us, but we've got to be so intentional with hearing this today. We cannot allow the simplicity of this to become mundane that we miss how 
unbelievably nonsensical it is. You might understand, yeah, God loves me. God saved me. He chose me. Get the implications of that. He did all of this because he first loved you. That's it. How were we saved according to Paul? He, he gives two descriptions. He says, number one, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Essentially, all that I can say about this is this has to do with salvation and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. He saved you because he convicted you. Doesn't matter how good of a message I might be able to preach, what amazing service you've been through throughout your life. Doesn't matter how good somebody plays an instrument and you're moved. It's all because of the power of the Holy Spirit. I could say three words, and if God chooses, that could be enough to bring you under conviction. And he's doing the work. It has absolutely nothing to do with my ability or your ability it has everything to do with the Holy Spirit's power. He's convicting. He's working. Amen. It says, I thank God that through his love, he chose you and he saved you through the work of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Number one, leading the dance. He's in charge. He's leading. But now here's where you're in step with his dance. Through belief in the truth. Whose belief in the truth? Go back, go back last week. We, we talked about this uh, briefly, but in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, um, you remember the followers of the Antichrist, but ultimately Satan who's in charge? That, that spirit of the Antichrist that's at work even now in people's lives today? Um, here, here's one of the descriptive qualities according to verse 10. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Here, here it is, this is an important part. They perish... Because they refuse to love the truth and what? So be saved. God saves those who believe the truth in response to his leading, his choosing, his sanctifying, convicting, calling work. He does all of that. But now you're here and you have got an opportunity to respond to him. And the Thessalonians responded. They didn't reject they didn't drive Paul out. They didn't get easily offended. I'm sure that the message that Paul brought was uncomfortable for some. It was revolutionary. It was upside down to the way of the world and the societal norms that they lived in. You better believe that there was some discomfort with facing the truth. And yet these individuals believed it, embodied it. They accepted it. You responded to his calling and his leading. That's what marks you. That's what defines you. That's what makes you different. You are not under the spirit of the Antichrist. You are not under the spirit of a liar. And you are not being given over to a God-ordained delusion. You are new. You are loved. You are chosen and you are saved. Jesus is calling you right now to continue to follow him. Follow him. If you don't know him, Jesus is calling you, and he's saying, follow me. If you know him, he's saying, keep following me. 
Verse 15. So then, brothers and sisters, in light of all of this that I have given thanks to God for because of you and because of him, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word, mouth, or by letter. So here's, here's the next point for you. Here's your response. In light of what you know God is to you, God loves you, he's chosen you, he's saved you, and I didn't put it here, but he's even called you. So here's your response. In Paul's prayer, guard the truth. Stand firm has the idea of a soldier standing his post. And Paul is saying, you got to guard that which God has led you to and given you freely. Guard it. Stand firm. Again, last week, Paul was addressing this lie, this deception of the Antichrist and, and Satan and the forces of darkness and how it was being spread throughout the church. And he said, in particular, in verse 2 of chapter 2, do not become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us that Jesus has come and it, was, it would have caused chaos. And this is how he said that false teaching came. Whether it comes by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter. And yet right here, what did he just say? He said, stand firm, holding fast to the teachings we pass on to you, whether by word of mouth or letter. So right here, there's a contrast. Paul delivered the message through the same means that apparently this false counterfeit message, false gospel had come and was causing disarray. So that, that's really important for you to understand once again. Because it's, it's really, really, really not about the means of how the message is communicated. It's about the message. And that's so important. Because we can get so caught up with the frill and the dazzle and the majesty and the amazingness of certain messages that seem so seductive in society or in other churches and other faiths and other gatherings and other mindsets or philosophies or belief systems. And it looks good. In fact, it might even seem like God. But Paul says, no, no, no. no. We've, we've delivered it the same way, word of mouth, letter. But there's one true message. And you've got to know the truth. <laughs> he describes this, this truth that we're to stand firm in as a teaching. Your Bible might say a tradition. Um, it's an interchangeable word right here, but it's very important because when we think tradition, we think trees in Christmas if you practice that tradition. Presents under a tree during Christmas, Santa Claus, uh, turkey for Thanksgiving, wh whatever you do for certain holidays, family traditions that you might have, and those aren't bad. That's not what this is. So if you would take this verse in your Bible, and if it says tradition, and you're having a family gathering, and your wife says, well, I don't want to do that tradition anymore. I don't like it. And you say, oh, hold up, honey. Look in the Bible. It says to stand firm in the traditions. It's not the traditions that Paul is here talking about. He's talking about teaching. And a very specific teaching. He's talking about the teaching of the gospel. The message of Jesus Christ. That tradition is what we're to stand firm in. Um. This is the, actually the same exact word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We just 
practiced the Lord's Supper here together. We honored in remembrance the body and the blood of Jesus that was given for us. And Paul says, for I received from the Lord that which I passed on to you. That's literally the explanation of what the word tradition means here in the Greek. It's this passing on through word of mouth, but you can think of a baton. Passing on that which Jesus has given to us. God, from his heavenly throne room, came down to earth, showed us the way to him, lived it, called others, and then passed them the baton. And now these disciples took it and they passed it on and passed it on and passed it on until right here, right now, we are holding the baton that the Lord has given us. This tradition, this teaching, and we have a responsibility in how we are to handle it, how we're to run this race. Paul says you can't deviate from it. You can't, you can't take a break from it. You can't walk away from it. You've got to stand firm in it. Don't exchange it. Don't give it up. Gospel of Jesus Christ. Stand firm in it. It's a part of his prayer. He goes on, verse 16. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So stop right there. He's still praying. Now he's interceding on their behalf. Interceding that God's love, God's work, his choosing, his saving, all of that, they would stand firm in it, but that they would also receive the means to be able to stand firm. And he gives two descriptive qualities. He says, number one, I want you to have, I'm praying that God will give you eternal encouragement and good hope. That's so interesting. Because I normally just hear encourage and hope, right? And that's a lot of what you read in the Bible. But right here, Paul gives some adjectival descriptions. Eternal encouragement and good hope. I guess there's a bad hope. (laughs) Um, The eternal encouragement I can fully understand. There, there's some stuff that I can just try and encourage you with in the moment. Or we can try and encourage each other in the moment. It doesn't make it bad, but it's fleeting. It won't last. It's eventually going to end. And Paul is saying, I want to pray that God, through his grace and his love, would provision you with the understanding in the face of persecution to recognize that the encouragement that he provides you is It never runs out. It's going to see you through into eternity. And by his words, man, living is eternal. Be in with God forever. Eternal. Um, good hope is interesting. This is kind of a conundrum. A lot of debate and research and talk and philosophy about this. Probably the best way that I can describe it to you is just something that I'm experiencing right now. A fellow believer of a different denomination, who I disagree with on a lot, um, theologically, started talking about hope. He talked about it within the context of hospital rooms. 
he made the argument that you can't give people false hope. I agree with that, but I don't know what his idea of false hope is. Vastly disagreed because his idea of false hope is talking about Jesus. And he's saying if you give him Jesus, you're giving him false hope because you're trying, here, here's his reasoning, you're trying to force them to muster up something within them that can only come organically. That part I agree with. I can shout at you until I'm blue in the face. You better have hope in Jesus. Have hope in Jesus. Why don't you understand that hope is in Jesus? But how does that help you if you aren't experiencing it yourself? That's something that only you can do. I can share it with you. That's where we disagree. I'm going to share it with you. I'm going to tell you that there is an everlasting good hope, an organic hope that is in Jesus and Jesus alone. got to embody that. I can't do that for you. No book can do that for you. No person can do that for you. Only Jesus. So do you believe and do you accept the truth? Even in your darkest moment, even in the hospital bed, when you might be breathing your last breaths on this earth, or your loved one is breathing their last breaths on this earth, and you've got to watch them breathe their last breath and you're filled with pain and sorrow and grief, that's what Jesus gives you. That in my grief, I can look and say, I'm hurting and I'm sad, but I know, I know that this is not the end. There is not this black void of a ceasing of existence that that person or myself is about to enter into when we breathe our last breath and when our heart flatlines. There is hope. There is light. Where, oh, death is your victory. Where, oh, death is your sting. It's been swallowed up. Thanks be to Jesus. good hope. But right here, this is the big part that I don't want us to miss. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. So the grounds upon which we stand once again needs to be reminded. We need to be reminded of God's gifts this, 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 good, etern- this good hope and this eternal encouragement, these gifts that God gives us, they are fully dependent on his goodness and not your worthiness, not the worthiness of the recipient. So this is permeating Paul's prayer because this is hope, this is joy, this is life, that it doesn't matter, it has nothing to do with you. All you got to do is lead, uh, is, is follow his leading. That's all you have to do. He invites you to the dance floor. He leads you. All you're doing is being in step with him. That's it. Everything is dependent on God. He initiates. He loves. He chooses. He leads. Paul's saying, I I, I just pray that based on all of that, that you would get more of the goodness of God in your life. He says, ultimately, I, I, I pray that you would be encouraged and you would have hope so that it would lead you to a response. So that you would now get up and respond to the calling of the Lord, beckoning of the Lord, to the command of the Lord, 
to follow me, says the Lord. Paul says, here's my prayer, that God, through his gracious, loving nature, would give you all that you need to respond, to get up, and to now follow. And he says specifically, what does that look like? Strengthen you in every good deed and word. Every part of your being be permeated by who God is and what he has done for you. Through that, respond. Who you are. How do you think? How do you feel? How do you act? How do you talk? Is it in step with God? Is it following his leading? Or are you trying to go solo and do things your own way? Because if you are, if you're not lying, if you, if you take your life, your thoughts, your words, your actions, and you line it up to God's word, his will, his ways, his love, his plan, and there's a ton of incongruencies, who's leading? You're not lining up with God. He's certainly not the one leading. I don't think he gets dragged along to that dance. <laughs> Paul is praying that we would be provisioned with to respond in. Hope of Christ is to penetrate the central hub of who we are, our moral being, our makeup, and it informs every part of it, the love of Jesus. Now, if we allow that to, if we respond to the truth and we follow the Lord's leading, every good work that we ought to do and speak is informed by that very goodness. It's God's way, not my way. So I bring it back to this. We love because he first loved us. And there's no other way. You can't lead this dance that you don't know. Only God can. So let me say it to you this way. We can't truly love until we have learned to walk in the love of God, right? That's what we've been talking about. All right, so why is this so important? Why is this aspect of walking in, in, in the way that God loves us and following his lead so important? Here's why. If, we, if our walk contradicts our talk, we lose our testimony. I preached at you right there. If my walk... Your walk, the way that I live, the way that I speak and act, my words and my deeds, as Paul says, if it contradicts the talk, the gospel, the proclamation, the word, if they're not congruent, if they're not lining up, if I'm saying one thing and being another thing, we lose our testimony. What's the whole basis of this prayer? Paul's saying, I thank God for what he has done in your life and the byproduct of it. You're passing the baton. You're walking in the tradition and the teaching that we have given you, and your faith is ringing out. You are doing the work of God, and the kingdom of God is growing on earth as it is in heaven. So I need to remind you that if your walk contradicts your talk, what kind of testimony are you leaving? Um, I think something that we probably can all agree with is the fact that authenticity is contagious. Like when, when somebody is authentic, like you want to you wanna listen to that person. You want to lean in. You probably might want to be around, even if you're introverted. You'd be like, if you had a choice of people, like you want to go to the authentic people, the real people. 
even if they're not perfect, you're like, well, because they're real. They're human. Like, I get them. Even in their imperfection, they're real about it. They don't have a facade up. They're not trying to be something that they're not. <laughs> so, so authenticity, it's contagious. So Christ in you is what is so compelling. Because who's the true authentic one? Who's the real one? Jesus in you. Jesus is the real one. And when Christ is in you, when he's the one leading your life and you're following in step with him, man, that is contagious. Doesn't mean everybody will like it, but it's contagious. People are going to respond to it as opposed to you just being lost and forgotten. Because if you don't have Christ in you, there's nothing special about you. They could fake it to you. You could be LeBron James. There's really nothing special about you in the grand scheme of things. Grand scheme of things. So if authenticity is contagious and Christ is in you is what's so compelling, then let me say it to you metaphorically this way in, in, in the reverse. A counterfeit bill will be rejected. Remember what we talked about last week about the Antichrist being a counterfeit Christ? And if you go and you try to make an exchange with somebody in the store and use a counterfeit bill and they, they use their marker, they hold it up to the sun, they see it's a counterfeit, the very, in the very least, you're rejected. You don't get to pay for your goods. In the worst, <laughs> you're getting the cops called on you. You're like, I don't know. I just got this from the bank. It was given to me for Christmas. But it's counterfeit, and it will be rejected. And you will be found out if you are counterfeit. So Paul is giving thanks to God because the Thessalonians are not following the counterfeit Christ, the Antichrist, the spirit that's permeating throughout the world even to this day of the Antichrist. Many are listening to, many have been deceived by, and many follow the leader. Thessalonians, can I pray to God? I would continue to follow the leading of the truth, the spirit, Jesus, and obey him. Stand firm in it. Word and your deeds prove the authenticity of Jesus in you. So don't be fake. Um, and just to remind you, Second Timothy, Paul also writes in chapter 3 in the 5th verse, and he's talking about the mark of those who follow the spirit of the Antichrist, essentially. Um, they have a lot of telltale signs. And in verse 5, he says this, they having a form of godliness, but denying its power. So people who follow the spirit of the Antichrist really look godly, but have absolutely no spirit of God in them. Authentic or are you counterfeit? A few weeks ago, um, I made this point at the beginning of my sermon and I said, we don't need our circumstances to change. We need our actions to. This was within the context of much of Thessalonians, all of Thessalonians, persecution. Right? And rather than praying, God, take me out of this, take me out of this, take me out of this, Paul has nothing that eludes that here. He's not even praying that here. Everything that he has said would be to encourage them to stand firm in the face of persecution. You've obeyed the truth. Stay in it. Don't be easily led astray. Don't follow the lie. 
I know it's hard right now, but you have an eternal glory waiting for you. And you need some encouragement. I'm praying to God that he will, through his grace and his mercy and his love, give you what you need to sustain you through this difficulty. So we don't need our circumstances to change. We need our actions to. Let me add to that. Not change it. I'm adding to that. We don't need our circumstances to change. We need to change our perception of it. That's what this prayer of Paul is all about. Clearly, he's just giving thanks to God. No question. But he's writing it here because he wants his readers to read it, to hear it spoken out loud, that their pastor, their apostle, their leader is praying to God on their behalf. Not that their circumstances would change, but that they would have a different perception of their circumstances. My difficulty, it's not the end of me. My problems, they're not all consuming to my life. The dread and the grief and the fear that I have... Jesus provides for me an eternal encouragement and a good hope because of his love and his grace and only because of him and nothing because of me. Paul is changing their perception. He's saying you got to see who you are in this grander scheme of God's kingdom. Your difficulty is not your life. Your persecution is not your life. Your hardship is not your life. Your frustration None of that. It's not your life. Even the good things that you can enjoy right here, right now, good family, good health, all the things that we ought to give thanks to God for in the grand scheme of things. He's so much bigger and he's so much greater. And it's his love, his grace, his saving power, his convicting power, his calling us, choosing us. That, that's everything for us. It's hope. So, Paul finishes his prayer leading into chapter 3, and I'll read it for you. Um, I'm not going to say much about it. <laughs> he says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us. I thank God for you, and we just read all of that and what that significance was. And now, brothers and sisters, pray for us. We need your prayers. So that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. Remember what Paul's been through, right? Beaten, falsely imprisoned, rejected by his own people, falsely imprisoned, shipwrecked multiple times, whipped, scourged, stoned, should have died, likely had health ailments and issues. I mean, this dude is the epitome of a hard life. Nothing is cozy about it. Nothing is enjoyable. He writes many of his letters from a prison cell. This man knows the meaning of hardship and persecution and difficulty. And now he takes one moment to ask that his fellow believers would pray for him, would intercede for him as he has done for them. And the content of his prayer is not, would you pray that I could get out of prison? Would you pray that my back would stop hurting? Would you pray that my health is rectified? Would you pray that my bank account is filled up? Mind you, I don't shame you if you pray for those things. I pray for those things. Wonder, how often is our prayer consumed by what we want? 
and more so how much of our prayers consumed by things that we want that really have nothing to do in the grand scheme of things with the kingdom of God being built on heaven as it is on earth. In other words, we're looking to God, we're praying to God, but all of it is focused on the here and now. God, I need you to fix today. It's, it's circumstantial. God, change the circumstance. My body, my health, change the circumstance. My job, fix it, change the circumstance. My finances, my mind, my parents, my relationships, change the circumstances. Circumstantial. Heavenly focus. Looking to him. Believing in him. Paul's prayer here is a request for intercessory prayer. Would have the strength and the means to keep preaching the gospel. Read that and I quickly interpret that as best I can for you. From the evil one, have, and then he goes on and he says, "We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command." Or direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Now I want to say Amen. And that really is the end of of where I want us to land in Thessalonians. But there is the rest of this chapter that I'm just going to read for you. Switching topics, switching gears completely. Because I think it's important. I'm going to have a brief thing to say, and then we're going to summarize this and, and close out this book. And then I'm going to read Paul's final, some of his final words, and it's going to be a blessing for you. Let me read verse 6 to the end of the chapter, or the verse 15. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order for ourselves to be a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They're busy bodies. That's Pastor Chase right there. Not that he's a busy buddy, but he and Paul would have gotten right on the same wavelength right there. as a pun right there. They would have just went back and forth. I can imagine them enjoying that. You ain't busy. You're a busy body. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus to settle down and earn the food that they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey the instruction of this letter. Don't associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Preached a message on that back in the summer. Stop shaming shame. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. So that is almost the end of this book. And after talking extensively about Jesus' second coming, the Antichrist, and now th giving thanks to God and praying and asking for prayer in return that the work of the Lord would continue to carry on, he gives a, a meaty section right here about being idle or a busybody, getting in each other's business, and, and gossiping, and, and, well, why aren't they doing that? Why aren't me doing that? I think they should be doing that. that that's essentially what's going on here. And then being entitled because we talked about this in 1 Thessalonians, that there were likely 
aristocratic, wealthy believers that comprised this Gentile-based church. And then you had people that weren't necessarily poor, but they were blue-collar workers, and it was looked down in society to, to work with your hands. And that's why Paul says, work with your hands. Nothing shameful about it. But they would say, like, oh, why, we, that works beneath humanity itself. And besides, there are a ton of wealthy people in the church. They ought to be provisioning for our needs. They've got plenty to spare. Remember, we kind of talked about that weeks ago. That's coming back here. So apparently, this was something that some of the Thessalonians were not heeding, or maybe new believers that were coming in were not heeding. And so this is it's kind of charged, because you go back in the beginning, Paul says, we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of those, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, brothers and sisters, keep away from every believer, not outsider, believer, who's idle and disruptive and doesn't live according to the teachings you receive from us. They hear it, amen, whatever they might do, but they're not living it. Their talk is not consistent with their walk, right? That means they're counterfeit. He says, have nothing to do with them. Ultimately, so that they will feel the shame, but not because they're your enemy, but because you need them to recognize their of their ways. They need to come under conviction. So, what does that mean for us? I, I read this because I think this is more of an important reminder, as much scripture is. Um, I, I know in our church that we have people who are out of a job, people who are retired, people that because of, you know, age or physical capacity can't work. This is an important reminder for all of you that are in that boat. Not because you're doing anything wrong. I don't see you doing anything wrong. But you need to be reminded of the scripture in the season of life that you're in. Or maybe you're heading into Maybe you know you're going to be unemployed. Maybe you know you're about to retire. Maybe you know your health is going to keep you from being able to work. Or maybe your job is just so boring that you have a lot of free time on your hands <laughs> and so you're working, but you know what I mean? This is really important for all of us to live by. Because when we get too much time on our hands and we're not kingdom-focused, so, so listen, this isn't saying that if you're retired, you can't work. Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent that, oh, you're doing something wrong. That's not what this is saying. This is saying, how are you living in that season of life that you're in? That's what you've got to be weary of and mindful of and look to God's word to respond in. Don't be busybodies. Don't go around because you've got nothing better to do than to start looking at people and judging them and talking bad about them. Keep, First Thessalonians, keep your head down. Work with your hands. Maybe you're not working in a job anymore. You're still working as a part of the kingdom of God. I don't care how old you get. Like, I, I'm serious. I, do, I will lovingly hear it if it has to do with physical being. But if you come to me and say, uh, Pastor, I put my time in, in the church. I'm old now. I just want to kick back and watch the youngins do it. No, that's not how it works. You've got a gift to offer. It might not look like it once did. It might not be physical. You have got a unique and necessary gift you can't pull a Moses at the burning bush in your 80s and say, oh, I'm old, or I don't talk good enough, or they're not going to listen. Read that whole passage. God's got a response for you. So wherever you're at in life, I, I wanted you to hear that, and I wanted you to know that that's in the Bible, and go back to it if you're struggling with that. It doesn't matter your age. Don't be idle. Don't be disruptive. Don't be a busy buddy. Keep doing the work of God. Keep doing the will of God. He's going to give you opportunities. Be obedient to it. Okay, amen, you got that? Cool. In closing, I kind of just want to summarize, and I'm going to repeat something that I did back in the second message of this sermon series. So going way back. Um, and this had to do with 
Paul saying, we thank God for you Thessalonians because you have been imitators of us. But remember, Paul is following the teaching, the instruction, the baton that Christ had passed on to him. So Paul is just reciprocating the teaching of Jesus. Paul is being an imitator of Christ. And now they're imitating Christ in Paul. And so we are continuing, by extension, to imitate Jesus. And there was a summary that I gave uh, in paraphrase of all of the, the praises, the thankfulness that Paul was giving, describing the imitating, the, the good imitating of the Thessalonians. And there were six of them. And so here's where I want to close. As we wait for Jesus' coming, and as we prepare for his imminent return, Jesus is coming. I want us to continue to imitate his ways so that we can be prepared to receive him when we're caught up in the clouds and we meet him in his triumphal return to this earth and we lead him in a holy procession, praising him, saying the king has come. We need to be ready. So so here's here's how in summary, if we go back to 1 Thessalonians, I won't read it for you, but I'll summarize what we said weeks ago. Number one, welcome the message despite suffering. You're going to suffer. Many of you know that. I know you know that. And you are walking this out. I say, well done. Keep it up. Welcome the message despite suffering. Model the faith. Don't allow your circumstances to keep you and give you an excuse from being models of what it means to live in the faith of Jesus Christ. Let your walk and your talk be authentic and consistent for the world to see and for generations to see. I don't care how old you are, young or old, you are a model to other believers in this room, in this place. Keep being it. For three, profess the gospel talked a little bit about the importance of not falling into this rut of, ah, just let my actions speak, because actions are louder than words. No, it's got to be both. You proclaim, and you show the veracity of your proclamation. It has to be consistent. Proclaim it. Don't be ashamed of it. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Let me try that again. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Yes. Good job. Proclaim it. Be hospitable to the gospel. Paul praised the Thessalonians because they were so receptive to his teaching. They welcomed it. Even if they were uncomfortable with it, they said, yes, this is the word of God. And it changed their lives. Be hospitable to it. Number five, turn from the created to the creator. Don't go back to idolatry. Don't go back to your former way of living. Don't be a dog that returns to its vomit. Turn. You have already turned. Repentance. And you are walking away from the created and looking to the creator. You don't worship that which was created. God gave you dominion over it. You use it for his glory. Worship him. Turn to him. Look to him. Don't be idolaters. Finally, it's a big one that we've been talking about for these weeks. Wait on Jesus. Wait on Jesus. Jesus is coming. That's everything. That's our hope. It's the reason for our expectation, our faith, our worship, our being, our living. Jesus is coming. If he wasn't, I don't know what all this would be about. He's coming. Amen?
Man, I hope that was a blessing. It was a blessing to me. I pray that we as a church family would continue to walk in all of God's ways and in his word. So I want to invite you to stand with me on your feet. I'm going to close for you. Uh, I'm going to speak this blessing over you, and then I'll pray. Um, so that's just what we do. Um, but this is close to the end of what Paul has to say. This is the last of the three verses of this entire writing to the Thessalonians that we have written in God's holy word And it's a blessing spoken over the people. And now I I speak it over you. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen. Father, be with us. God of peace. Emmanuel. Would we live for you in every way, all of our days? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go with the Lord. And hopefully we'll see you Wednesday. Movies, popcorn, bring the kids, bring the family, bring your friends. I don't care. Bring your grandma.